Hey everyone, and welcome to another fantastic episode of the podcast. Today we are joined by our amazing guest, Roberto. He shares with us all of his major life experiences that have led to him ultimately being an advocate for reestablishing indigenous values. He's extremely well educated and talks about his journeys and how they've given him the tools needed to create change. Let's get into it. Remember to stay present and aware of your surroundings. Take a deep breath in and tell yourself, you are here. There are key points that made some positive changes in my life. Uh-huh. Because I came from a very poor family in rural Oklahoma. Okay. Native. My mother was indigenous. My father was Chicano, but he left when I was three years old. Mm. My mother remarried to another a Muscogee man. She's Muscogee herself. But, oh, uh, he, he only had a fourth grade education, so the only jobs he could get was in farm work, and it was like $20 a week. Oh, wow. Back in the 50s, probably some were very poor, no electricity, <clears throat> no phone, no vehicle. Mm-hmm. So we depended a lot on relatives in the church. That's that yeah, that sounds very difficult. How how were you able to to cope growing up with that? Well luckily in high in grade school I had two teachers that has a good effect on me. Mm, okay. Mrs. Brown, her husband was the um, post office guy. Mm. And she saw that I liked to read. So she gave me these life magazines. And um, I was really, it opened up the world to me, so to speak. Wow. And then I had a teacher, Mr. Holland, who saw something in me. He gave me two books from the library. One was called The Story of the Atom, and the other was called Life on Other Worlds. Mm. And that opened me up to beyond the, beyond the Earth, actually. Yeah. <laughs> the first taste of science fiction, right? Yeah. That's wonderful. He was a good guy. He built his own success. Reflective telescope around the mirror himself. He helped me set up a little crystal radio. So I I started listening to radio from Oklahoma City, Del Rio. Not opening up to the world to a certain extent. Yeah. And and so what what age would you be at this time? I was about 11, 12 years old. Mm, okay. So you're finally being introduced to 
outside of your area the possibilities. Mm-hmm. And I okay. also I saw this little airplane flying over, dropping some newspapers. <clears throat> and I started drawing pictures. And my mother, she, she saw that I had good artistic skills, so she was proud of me. And uh, talked to her, her sisters, my aunts. So I kept drawing. And then <clears throat> I actually wrote a, wrote a little, I don't know what you call it, but I got some paper that was unruled, and I wrote it myself. And I wrote a story about a 100 pages. Oh, wow. About a, man, a young man who was going to be a jet pilot. Because I was so interested in jet planes. But <clears throat> years later, my real father, who I was living with when I was in high school, uh-huh. and his, I was in college, and he threw, he threw those, he threw that story away in those pictures. Oh, no. So they were in a paper bag. He said they were trash. Wow. Oh, that's and terrible. Were, yeah, it's precious. Anyway. Why, uh, why do you, why do you think he did that though? Well, I don't know if it's him or it was his wife. His wife didn't care for me. Oh, okay. And, um, I don't know. I just, they didn't think, they didn't look at what was there. I assume. Were you, were you trying to show it to them and trying to like? No. They were just in the paper back there. That's all I had to put them in. Anyway, I looked up. I had some problems with you when I was younger. I got arrested twice for petty things like drinking underage and petty larceny. Oh, okay. But I, got a, I got a scholarship to the uh, college in New Missouri where, I was, where he was living and I stayed with him. Then I transferred to the University of Missouri and met this young uh, girl from Bay Area who introduced me to the new con- new concepts because she showed me this book about beatniks in San Francisco. Uh-huh. And I said, yeah, well, I'd like to be a beatnik. <laughs> <laughs> but my mother said she was spending too much time with me not studying she just wrote me a Dear John letter, and it just crushed me. Oh, I man. And uh, she was really smart, and she recognized my intelligence. That's why she liked me. But, so I dropped out of school, and I was so depressed. Then I convinced my cousin to go with me to San Francisco, but I thought maybe I could connect, reconnect with her there. We hitchhiked there for seventy dollars. Wow. Couldn't find it, so we joined the tried to join the navy. He, he was lucky in a way that he was rejected for high blood pressure because a couple of years later he got to go to Harvard Medical School. Oh wow! 
And, and, and I'm lucky. I got accepted. I went to a electronic school because I had to, one of the smallest guys in the class. Uh-huh. But they sent me to Morocco and I was treated like shit by this guy who was my boss. He would call me Pancho. And I remember telling him, I don't, I don't want you calling me those names anymore. So the next day I found myself assigned to the kitchen. And you're supposed to be doing electronics. Yeah. And, um, so I wake up at 345. Didn't wake up, but I was alarm went off at 345 in the morning and you didn't start work in the kitchen until six, but you couldn't go back to sleep. Then you work 12 hours a day, six days a week. Oh man. And what, and, and why do you, and it was just the discrimination then yeah. that where they just put you because they didn't want to have to deal with you. Exactly. But I got out of there. I went to bed. And they couldn't prove that I was faking it, so they let me go. And I got out with a honorable discharge. And, uh, I wanted to be a writer because I, I was always writing. Uh huh. So I decided to go to New York City. That's where writers go, right? Yeah. Because I read a book in high school that my Jewish girlfriend, well, not girlfriend, Jewish friend, young woman friend, who lent me this book called Rebels and Ancestors by Maxwell Gismar. And it, it opened my, me politically because I realized I was working class and that I want, I should be a socialist. Because mm-hmm. those are, the writers were all socialists. Yeah. Or letters. Around what, what year would this be? That would be, well, that was in high school, senior in high school that I read that book before I went to college. And then when I went to college, I started reading more of Marxist works and there was a couple of, and I transferred these to the University of Missouri. There was a Marxist guy from New York, Jewish Marxist from New York City. And they had a chapter of Students for Democratic Society. So I joined, and I liked it because it had the best parties. It had the best parties? Mm-hmm. <laughs> but I was into Marx, uh, I was into more existentialism than Marxism. Oh, John, okay. Albert Camus, John Paul Sartre, Simone de Beauvoir, those people. And I tried to combine Marxism and existentialism. I wrote a little article about it that was published. And I realized is that I'm one of those intellectuals, so to speak. <laughs> it sort of went to my head in a way, but I started writing, but at one point, I said, geez, I'm, I'm being too much of an intellectual. I'm going to, so I threw all my writings away, which I regretted from that period. 
You just wanted like a reset. Yeah. And then what did I do? Oh yeah. I went to New York City. Me and my sister hitchhiked to New York City. And uh, I got a job as a film with a filmmaker. Mm. He was how to make films, 16 millimeter films. And I learned by being there and running the projector. And I met, uh, well, before that, I met this beautiful girl, but I, I just too much, I was too much of it into my head with intellectualism and existentialism and probably mixed with some depression. So that didn't work out, but I made a movie about that. With some friends, we, we decided we could do the same thing this guy would do it. Mm-hmm. It was a really smart Palestinian guy. And there's an older woman. She was in her early 30s, and I was in my mid-20s. And she liked me, and we started going together. And I moved in with her. And we each made a film. Oh, and wow. I really liked it. Uh, so I... I, I could be a writer, screenwriter, I could be a director, I could be a camera person or editor, you know, all that stuff interested me. So I always want to be a filmmaker from then. I started, I got to see movies by Jean, um, Jean-Luc Godard, uh, Antonioni, uh, Sadajit Ray, and all of these filmmakers that I would never see in Outside of New York City. Mm. And we lived, actually lived in Manhattan in West Village, which now is impossible unless you could make a hundred thousand dollars a year. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> but I was lucky that in that period you could, you could live there for $90 a month. <laughs> oh, which wow. I thought, but uh, that's what she paid for her studio apartment. <laughs> but then I, then I wanted to go to, uh, make a film with my, with my tribe. So I convinced her to come with me to Oklahoma City where we found a job in an art gallery and I was teaching young black kids how to make films. But the teacher for some reason didn't like her so he fired her. Oh wow. That's strange. And she was so depressed and uh, she said, well let's just go to San Francisco and visit a friend of mine and we can come back after a while. So we drove out to San Francisco and we got involved with the San Francisco newsreel. And these are, these were the guys that were, they had an a office in a warehouse in, in the mission, well, in San Francisco. And we went to see them to join. And they said, well, if you want to join us, you have to believe in armed struggle. Armed so struggle. we said, yeah, because it was the 60s. And my girlfriend liked something that she found called the Black Panther Manifesto. Mm. And they were in the armed struggle. So we said, yes, not quite sure if we wanted to be in armed struggle, but my experience in the Navy was enough to turn me into a radical, so to speak. Ah, uh, true. So all, these, all, all these little things kind of were adding up and adding up to your skill base to 
prepare yeah. you for this. <laughs> anyway, uh, the next day we went down to Army, Army Surplus Store and bought uh, green Army Surplus jackets because that's what those guys, who, the newsreel people were wearing. And we actually, she actually bought a M1 carbine. Oh, wow. Because we were supposed to be armed because we were afraid. Everybody was thinking, oh, we're going to have a revolution in five years. <laughs> <laughs> I joined uh, the Los Angeles de la Raza, a Latino group, and they, they were doing something similar to the Black Panther Party. They had a breakfast of children program, which I had to get up at 5.30 in the morning, which is hard for me, but I did it. And then we would go to the Black Panther Party headquarters to to their uh, popular, well, uh, Political education classes, which consisted of reading from the Little Red Book, the Mao Zedong, Chinese word. And um, anyway, I liked I liked Mao. I liked his writings. I liked his thinking. So I was considered a Maoist, so to speak. And was ready for the revolution. But then I got involved with the Native movement because they were. I worked at the American Indian Center, and they were planning to take over the island of Alcatraz during the meetings at the, at the American Indian Center. They were students, mostly, from the San Francisco State. So uh, I joined that, and uh, I was well, with one of the first boats that went to Alcatraz to claim it. Oh, wow. But, uh, but Eventually, everybody got kicked out after a few months because they just slowly, they couldn't get any money. They wanted to go to university. Uh -huh. And people started leaving. It was hard there. The, the leader of the group, John, uh, Richard Oakes, young Mohawk from New York, it was kicked out by this other woman, one of the women leaders and her two sons. So he went, he was wanting to go. He was asked to go to the Pit River tribe to weigh up them with us. Struggle to get their land back from Pacific Gas and Electric. So my girlfriend and I, we went up with our camera. And we all got arrested uh, to reoccupy one of their camps. But we ended up with no charges, which is good. And then we made a documentary about the tribe and their struggle. So that was the first documentary that I ever did. And actually got it accepted by American Documentary Films. But lucky for me or, or us, they went bankrupt and they lost. In the, and then, then I had a copy, but the post office lost the copy. Oh, my so goodness. So I still have a copy of it. I heard that it's, the tribe has a copy, but I haven't had a chance to go up there and try to track it down. So I made a mistake at that point in my life by falling in love with this young native woman from Maine and uh, going to Maine with her and getting her pregnant. And uh, I realized she just didn't have no ambition. Uh -huh. um, she just wanted to be with her parents and enjoy, like, playing cards with her grandmother. And uh, we first we were going to go back and forth from San Francisco but afterward, for one trip, she changed her mind, didn't want to go anymore. But that trip was one of the happiest periods in my life because I was a DJ at this new 
uh, radio station, KP, KPOO. I don't know if it's still going on, but mm-hmm. I was, became a DJ there. And then I, I was commissioned to do a mural for the, by the San Francisco Museum of Modern Art, paid me thousand dollars, which is a lot of money back then in the late seventies, early seventies. Mm-hmm. And I lived, uh, we lived in a communal space in Hey, that's great, which now it's impossible to afford. <laughs> you got to experience all these things before it skyrocketed in prices. Oh, yeah. Anyway, uh, let's see what happened there. I, I, when it, when my wife decided not to go back and forth to San Francisco, I realized this is, I don't want to be, Living in this little reservation right by the Canadian border in Maine, it was just too. I don't know what the word. There's a lot of alcoholism, a lot of drinking and drugging, and uh, I decided that I, I'm not going to spend the rest of my life here. Uh-huh. By that time, we had three children, which, and I, so I fell in love with this other woman, and got a divorce from her from my first wife. But, uh, I, I was going with this old other woman. She's like 10 years older than me. And we traveled to, up to Canada, up to near the Hudson Bay, which is furthest north I'd ever been. But I've, then I, then I started hanging around with this woman from Southern Maine. And she was really curious about me and my life and uh-huh. was very attractive. So I left this other woman and she, she offered to let me stay with her at this wealthy man who bought a house and was letting his friends stay there just to pay them. All they had to pay was the, uh, utilities. It was a two story house. And so I went down and that was a happy period. I did some really great artwork there. And one of the things that really changed my life was when in Portland, Maine, that's where the house was, was that I met this young woman who was so outgoing and so intelligent and so warm. She was hugging you within a few minutes. And I said, how do you get to be the way you are? She was also a leader in this movement. Um, CISFEST, I think it was called. Uh, solidarity with Central American struggle. So she said, well, there's a group that you can go to. It's called re-evaluation counseling. It's a peer counseling thing. And she said, that's what changed me. So I did. I, I went and I jumped into that group with both feet because I had realized I was carrying around an enormous amount of pain like uh, grief and sadness and humiliation and anger and uh, self-hate into what we call internalized oppression. Mm-hmm. And it changed my life. And uh, mm-hmm. I realized that, like, my son was about nine years old, my first son, and he, he said, Dad, are you still doing that co-counseling? I said, yes. He said, good. 
Because <laughs> he noticed the difference in me. <laughs> he noticed that I started paying a whole lot more attention to him. Before, I just didn't have his attention. Yeah. And I realized how important it was to give attention to your children, which I did best I could. Yeah. And I, I still stay with it. Like every, every, twice a week, I counsel with a woman in Berkeley who I met when I lived in Berkeley for a while. Well, not Berkeley, but actually Oakland. So that, that keeps me going and in, in these troubled times mm-hmm. where so much isolation and mental illness is especially young people. Yeah. It seems like was is that was like the main propulsion for your art or like pushing you towards art is just you you're probably trying to look for some, some way to express yourself and what you're feeling. Well, I was always an artist since I was 10 years old, 10 12 years 10 to 11, 12 years old when I started drawing airplanes. And I did a lot of good work. It helped, the counseling helped because I did some really excellent work in art in that house that we were living in, that I was living in. But eventually the guy who owned it, he was, he was on, he was liberal, but he, for some reason he decided to sell it. He wouldn't let us buy it or red keep it or whatever. So mm-hmm. I had to go. Me and my girlfriend had to go and rent a place. But she eventually got depressed and we kind of slowly went up, drifted apart. I tried to go back to Maine to be with my children more. Not Maine, but the reservation. That okay. really wasn't very long. It was just too depressing there. So. And they just, she, they just didn't want to leave the reservation as well. Who, my children or my ex-wife? Um, all, all of them. They, did they not have like any interest on leaving? I'm not sure who you're talking about. Um, your Is children that, or your, your ex-wife? Well, my children would like to, I'm sure would have liked to live with me in Paris, in Portland, in that house, but my, my ex-wife would not allow it. Hmm. You have any custody, there was no joint custody. Oh, okay. So they hit me, but they they couldn't live with me. Gotcha, gotcha. You didn't want to go go there, of course. But by that time, I was with another woman. Um, but anyway, and then I lived in Portland about five years or so, and I met this young—well, not young, but we were both young, I guess. I met this Jewish woman and had a good relation with her because we were both part of this political group. And um, and I wanted to make a film. I started writing screenplays. And but she, I wanted to go back to Maine, and not Maine, Oklahoma, or where I thought I could find more native filmmakers, native actors. Uh-huh. <laughs> but she didn't want to go to Oklahoma. Sort of couldn't blame her, but. We actually took a trip down, and she didn't care for it. It was 90 degrees, and it was May. If we had gone like a week or two earlier, it would have been cooler. <laughs> Just missed it. Yeah. So I had to go by myself. 
and it was hard. I ended up homeless to a certain extent, but some people took me in. And eventually I got uh, what they call Hudvash Veterans Administration helped me get an apartment. Well, I actually, that was later, but I would go to, I, would, I went back to, I went to Oklahoma City because there was a filmmaking group there and met some filmmakers. And then I tried to, I couldn't find actors either in Oklahoma thought as much as I thought I could. Uh-huh. And, but in Oklahoma City, I got involved in politics. I started a group called Idle No More, which is a group, a native group that originated in Canada and spread to the United States. And I, we had to, I realized I was a pretty good organizer because we became the largest native group in the in the state. And we had 30 people in our group. Oh, okay. But it was, oh, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, like, you just seem to really have, like, a penchant for being able to, like, uproot yourself and travel and and really socialize and interact with, with a lot of other people. Yeah, it helped. The, the co-counseling really helped, you know, to build relationships. Mm-hmm. And I, I saw myself as a scout for my people and scouts always go behind enemy lines and check things out (laughs) (laughs) again there's that that little military experience you got (laughs) (laughs) yeah but anyway uh, (laughs) anyway uh I was gradually, my politics was gradually evolving too because I started, uh, getting involved with different groups. Like I got involved with the bioregional movement and ended up in their t- leadership role there. Was able to, uh, travel to bioregional congresses. And then, and then I just decided to have a, Bioregional Congress in Maine, which I organize, and I realized, geez, I'm a pretty good organizer because I learned how to delegate. Uh-huh. So whenever, whenever we were planning the the meeting, Congress, people would say, "Why don't we do this and that?" And I'd say, "Well, yes, we can, but you're in charge, and you don't <laughs> have to do all the work. Either. You can delegate the work, some of the work too." So I. Breeze through that whole process because I learned that you don't have to do everything yourself. Yeah. And I watched this other guy who was in the group that I, that was trying to do that. And he, he sort of burned himself out because he wanted to do everything. But, yeah, yeah. uh, that's, that's a common thing among a lot of movement people. Yeah. You got to be able to trust other people to do the jobs themselves. Yeah. And give them. Leadership, trust their leadership abilities because, you know, if they had an idea, they're obviously thinking about good things, positive things. Yeah. And they want, they want to be a leader. Everybody wants to be leaders. They want to accomplish things. So I just allow them to do it. I encourage them, give them an opportunity and it just works, works yeah. fine. 
And then I organized a bi-regional congress in Maine, but it was a national one. And that went well, too. And I got involved with uh, some people in the Greens. They were just starting up. So I got in, I moved over to the Greens and uh, rose to the leadership there, too. Was able to travel to Rio de Janeiro as a representative at the first mm. Green Congress. But that was a bad experience because uh, two things. One, there was a group from California. Well, there was a guy and a woman who were not, who were not, uh, affiliated with our group because we were, we were considered the Greens on a national level. So me and this black guy, we were both elected to represent the Greens. Uh-huh. But only when we got to Rio de Janeiro, the European Green said, um, well, you guys have to decide who's going to be the representative. And these two people who were oh, two white women, two white men and a woman, they had paid their own way to Rio because they were obviously uh-huh. upper middle class. And they wanted to represent. Mm. <laughs> and I said, well, this other guy and I were elected to be representatives. Yeah, and the, green, the Greens, the European Greens, they said, "Well, you guys decide amongst yourselves who's going to represent." In other words, they did not accept that we were rep, we were ele- uh, elected to be representatives. Yeah, and that they pissed just, me off. They just had to go for whoever was there. Yeah, and these were this one of this was just they were both individuals. They weren't elected to do anything. Mm-hmm. Uh, they just wanted to go, and they. Just because they were there, they wanted to be the representative, you know, or one of the representatives. And the European Greens, I realized, were racist because they got along with them fine because those mm-hmm. two people were white and they were all white Europeans. And they just kind of ignored me and this black guy. And that, that was not a good sign. Anyway. Yeah. And the woman said, well, it has to be a woman representative. She wasn't elected, wasn't elected either, but she was using that as a way of saying, well, I need, I can be the representative because I'm a mm-hmm. woman. You need a man and you need a one of the representatives has to be a woman. Yeah. It was, it was really dis, just plain disgusting the way these people were. Yeah. Just no, no merit, no involvement, just kind of just push their way <laughs> to the front. Yeah. Just all this opportunism, individualism. Anyway, uh, then the Greens started to try to run for president. Of course, they lost. They never got anywhere. They always they ran every single time, and they they always lose. Mm-hmm. And then we, I was part of the left Greens, and there was a Murray Bookchin. I don't know if you heard of him, but he's a, a thinker from that period. Uh, he was our guru, so to speak. Okay. And but I didn't read his writings that much when I was there. He he kind of gave me the pressure of his crotchety old man. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I I got sick of the greens at a certain point because the you the, the there was a group of people who were mostly white, of course, who wanted to be 
run run for they wanted to do electoral work. And we in the Greens just wanted to remain as a movement. We didn't want to get involved in electoral politics, but they did. So they had separate meetings, which they didn't invite us, of course. And they mm. formed the State Green Party. State uh, Green Party USA. And one of the people who had formed that group, he was no, he was originally elected as the leader of the Greens when it was still together. But he didn't, other people got elected leaders, including myself. So he turned around and formed the electoral group. And that electoral group became stronger because they were able to get money from states where they were able to run candidates and hmm. the Green split at that point from the electoral group and the movement group. And by the time I was sick of it, so I quit. Yeah. And then this next step was just them. It was just about funding at that point. Yeah. So I, I got involved with another group in Detroit called the National Organization for American Revolution with Jimmy and Grace Lee Boggs, who were like the leaders of that. Long-time leaders of the... Have you ever heard of them? No, I'm not familiar. Hmm. Well, they are the de facto leaders of the Detroit movement. And I got to know them. They liked me. They sent me to, they offered to take, uh, let me attend the Cowdery School. Mm-hmm. And I became a fellow traveler. And I met them and I liked Jimmy quite a bit. Grace was a little bit standoffish. Well, she liked me too, but she was not as, she was a different person from Jimmy. And I remember when I first stayed at their place, they were arguing with each other really loud. And I, I was surprised with them. But that's, I don't know, that showed me something about them. How did you, how did you get connected um, with them? Somehow I ran across a pamphlet from their group north and I wrote to them and I said I lived in Maine and they said well we're in Maine every summer uh, at some island off the coast that one of, that, uh, one of the members owned and they said well, you can come visit us so I did it was summer and I, I went to that island and I met them they liked me they invited me to go to the <coughs> Cadre school. And I went to that. And then they were talking about trying to do something with young people in Detroit. And we were talking about it. And uh, I came up with the idea of why don't we do the model of the Mississippi summer and call it Detroit summer. And I wrote an article about that. How we could invite people from all over the country. Like Mississippi Summer did, mostly students, to uh-huh. come to Detroit and work with whatever the people in Detroit wanted them to do. And they said, yes, let's do it. But they had no money for the pay the first person that needed it. So I had to convince, since I was a leader in the Greens, I convinced them to pay the few thousand dollars that it costs to pay that person to leave the first year. Mm-hmm. And 
It really, I had to really work hard to convince it because we didn't have a lot, a whole lot of money at that at that time. Yeah. But they did, and they, they the first meeting, first screen thing was successful. And uh, later, when uh, Grace wrote her autobiography, she didn't mention me or the Greens. Oh no! And I understood why she did that. It was optics, as they call it. It would the optics would not look good that a native guy who didn't live in Detroit came up with the idea of Detroit summer, how it could should be done. Oh my goodness. And the Greens were not mentioned, even though if I hadn't convinced our group to pay for the first year, for the first uh, facilitator or whatever you're called, that wouldn't have happened. It wouldn't have happened. But they did not bother to give us any credit. And <laughs> it, I, I didn't say why, but I assumed it was because we weren't black and we didn't live in Detroit. And it wouldn't look good if you know, outside forces or people helped them or, you know, come up with the idea of how to do it. So in that, just in said, that moment, how, how did that, how did that make you feel? What was your reaction to that? Well, I was disappointed in them that they would do that. I mean, I understood why, more or less. I didn't know mm-hmm. for sure, but I figured out it was probably because they wanted it to be they didn't, it did not, it would not look good to see that they had help from outside. Yeah. And, and people that, who were not black, we were mostly, if I was native, of course, and the people in the Greens that helped me, they most of them were white, but they were not, uh, they didn't live in Detroit either. Oh, okay. Gotcha. So anyway, just kind of let that go. At that point, I was beyond being angry and bitter, uh, and a co-counseling help for that. I just decided to let it go. Mm-hmm. I understood the but I didn't agree with it, but, uh, I remember the co-counseling that I learned that says, most people do the best they can with the information they have at the time. And the information they had at the time was, this needs to be an all-black thing. <laughs> oh, okay. So you were able to make your peace with that fairly quickly then? Yeah. I mentioned it to um, one of the one of the Boggs people who was a white guy who was uh, came to Detroit. And because he liked Jimmy Grace's ideas, uh, but he was really nasty to the Greens that came one, they came to him and wanted to work with them and help them get it started. And he was nasty to them and calling them uh, upper middle class, uh, people who were just, I forgot what he, the words he used, but he was basically putting them down. Mm. Middle class and not workers and, all kinds of negative stuff about them. And they told me, and I tried to see what I could do, but I, there wasn't much I could do. And then I met that guy years later, and I told him about what about Detroit Summer. And he, he just says, oh, you were upset because 
you you wanted to get your name out there, eh? <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness! And I didn't mention to him how nasty he was to our group. And yeah. Uh, Seems to not remember any of that. <laughs> yeah. But anyway, yeah. I, I just didn't know. I just wish they had told the truth. And so at this point, what are your, what were your goals? What were you trying to achieve? Or were you just kind of going from well, one thing to the next? Well, my politics were evolving. I met uh, the leader. Well, I met the editor of the Aquasasi Notes, which is the, the largest newspaper, native newspaper in the country. It's no longer, it's no longer doing it, but the leader was a young man named John Mohawk who was really smart. And he was started criticizing Marxism. And, yeah. uh, around, they were into industrialization and materialism. And, and how they needed to be in, Native people needed to be into what we call what they call appropriate technology, but basically it was technology that was not controlled by capitalists. I finally figured out. Oh, okay. But he was very smart. He wanted me to join this group, and I tried to live there with my wife. I was still married at the time, wife and uh, son, but it just didn't seem to be the right place for a raise a child. Some ways I regretted not staying there, but anyway, he passed away about 10 years later. Oh, okay. And so I started thinking about, well, oh yeah, what happened was I wrote, I, I was going to write a book about the native movement. It was called, I took a quote from, uh, Black Elk Speaks where he says, uh, look, a nation is coming. And I call it Look, the Nation is Coming, subtitled Native Americans and the Second American Revolution. It wasn't very big. It was only like 66 pages. But Grace edited it for me, which is good. And they published it. And I got invited to speak around the country for a short while. Okay. After published. And actually, it's going to be republished now. Oh, fantastic. Uh, it was going to be by a small printing, small company in Atlanta, but when I was in Detroit this last, last, uh, two weeks ago for a conference, I met, uh, Shay, Shay Howell, who's one of the leaders of the, uh, the Bog Center. And she said, well, we can publish it. And I said, well, I need an editor. And she said, well, I can be the editor. <laughs> And she was one of the few people that recognized that I came with the idea of Detroit Center. Because I knew uh, that I came into a, a meeting. With, I was at a meeting there. and She said, oh, there's Roberto. He's the guy that came up with the idea of Detroit Center. She's the only one of the leadership that recognized my role. <laughs> at least, anyway, at least uh, that paid off, right? <laughs> yeah. So... That's one of the things I got to do is write, rewrite. And then I'm going to, I got involved with writing for medium.com. Have you heard of them? I think so. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I got 135 followers in the last year and I got about 20 articles and uh, responses. So I'm going to add 
those writings. We're going to publish the, the book itself, republish it, but we're going to add the writings from Medium to show the evolution of my thinking. Ah, interesting. Because what, what had happened in the meantime, which is really involving me even more so, is that I was reading an article by Martin Luther King called Beyond Vietnam, and one of the things that he said was we as a nation must, must, let's see, what was it again? We as a nation must begin, or I forgot what the word, but anyway, we as a nation must do something about, jeez, um, I get my memory started to get worse. <laughs> uh, no worries, no worries. I'm going to be 80 years old next month. Anyway, uh, jeez, this is me off that I can't remember that. <laughs> no, you're good. We, Would we, you we like me to look it up real quick? You could. One second. Is it we as a nation must undergo a radical revolution yeah. of values? Exactly. There we go. That struck me. And I was thinking more about indigenous values. So I decided, well, that's where I need to go. Look at indigenous values mm-hmm. as part of that. And <laughs> undergoing the revolution, radical revolution of values. And I, the, the key word was radical, because I wanted to go to the root. Radical uh-huh. means go to the root. And so, I, and I realized at the same time, I need to, I need to understand capitalist values, because that's what everybody lives under, including myself. Yeah, we were all raised under capitalist values, and then I also realized that we still carry a lot of capitalist values, depending. Uh, unconsciously in our thinking. And because of that, we act on them sometimes. And those values, like individualism, many times affect leaders of movements. And as a result, they cause divisions and groups fall apart, stop functioning. And other, like other values, especially among the men, Patriarchy. Yeah. They call it sexism. Sexual harassment and all that, all that kind of stuff. So I realized that we, I needed to make a study about the two sets of values because people needed to be able to decide which set of values they want to follow. And I realized also that most people do not recognize that they live in the capitalist values, that they, that they still have them. Yeah. Even people in the movement don't realize that either. Mm. But they need to realize what those values are in order to decolonize their thinking from them. So that's, that was my, I worked on that for quite a while. I came up with a, what I called a seminar. And I called it the two names. One was uh, just simply, Indigenous values versus capitalist values. And the other was, um, 
something along with answering Martin Luther King's call for a radical revolution of values, which is probably the best title. <laughs> and so, so I, go ahead. Um, just briefly, what what um could you could you summarize um I guess what your what the seminar covered in regards to the the values between capitalist values and indigenous values? Um, well, it it covers the fact that most people don't know either of those sets of values, uh-huh. therefore are confused about their values, and they don't realize that the values are like the foundation of a house. Or somebody, my, my friend put it another way, she said, values are like the soil for, for plants to grow, or for ideas to grow in. But basically, mm-hmm. it's great meaning the same thing, that they were the base, the starting point. Yeah. Uh, radical thinking. And a lot of people talk about policies and principles and visions, but they don't go deep enough to look at actual values that these policies are based on. And a lot of people confuse values with culture. Say, we have to change the culture. Yeah. But the culture is the result of values, which a lot of people don't realize. Mm. Just like the revolution in China. Look where that went. The values are screwed up there. So they screwed up the cultural revolution. Gotcha. So I was able also to see that capitalism and communism, both from Western European ideas, they shared some similar values, not completely, but on, on they overlap to a certain degree. One, uh-huh. they both loved industrialization. They both liked and operated on top-down hierarchical governing systems. And they both were very materialistic because they mm-hmm. thought that happiness comes from material wealth. So that's why they were trying to industrialize. And that's why they were kept talking about workers. And the, the reason, the reason why they kept, uh, the reason why they called themselves a vanguard party was because that was part of the hierarchical thinking. Hmm. The vanguard, which going to lead the revolution, the vanguard were industrial workers, which is no longer the case, of course. <laughs> and also, they their shared materialist values. It's more clear in capitalism. You know, the, it's become a consumer's concept. Concept, but even the communists thought that they had to give all kinds of material goods. And then the, the workers would be happy. Yeah. So you're both terrific. But what I learned about indigenous values was that uh, happiness comes mainly from re- good relationships. Yeah. Not only with your fellow human beings, but with the earth and the animals, the plants, and the air, all living things and things that contribute to living things. If you have good relationships with them, that's the source of true happiness. And I use the example of a tribal chief who, could, who looks very poor. He didn't have as any, sometimes he had less material goods than most of the tribe, the tribal members. So where did his happiness come from? And it became clear to me that his happiness came from the love, 
care and respect of his community. Mm-hmm. And that's what I realized. Yes, that's I'm I'm poor too, yeah. but I'm happy most of the time because I I do good work and I get respect and care and even love from the people I work with, the groups that I started. And uh, one of the groups I started recently was Cooperation Tulsa because I uh, I went to a meeting, uh, a Congress of Municipal Movements in Detroit, and they talked about a group that was started in the United States called Symbiosis Network. And one of the leading groups was Cooperation Jackson, They're one of the oldest groups. It's mostly black in Mississippi. Oh, okay. So I, I want to go home and start a cooperation Tulsa, and I did. And it's still going on after two or three years. But there you go. <laughs> one of the things that one of the, there are several reasons that I came to Los Angeles. So one was they they stopped really studying my seminar on indigenous values. They didn't pay enough attention to it. Uh, and and they didn't require they had it on a list of things to read, but they didn't require people to read it in a group. And mm. then like a vacation group. I I was gonna do that, but something happened and I wasn't able to and they never rescheduled it. And I could never get it to reschedule. Because I said, Oh, well we already got it on things to read. And then as a result, there were ingredients in the group. Um some council culture popping up. Anyway, uh, the other reason, the other reason I, I realized that in Los Angeles had the largest number of native people and the largest uh-huh. number of Chicano people, Latinx people, which I'm half and half, you know, and, and I tried to work, get the groups, native groups and Latino groups in Tulsa to work together. I couldn't get them to work together. I had started a page about hmm. that and I, I asked for people to come to a meeting and nobody showed up. Really? Why do you think that was? You would think so. But Oklahoma's a very conservative state, one of the reddest states. Every single county voted for Trump. So that means a lot of Native people voted for Trump. Hmm. And I remember a Native guy when he was, uh, when, I, when Bush was getting elected, he said, I cannot vote for anybody who's for abortion. So that same guy would vote for Trump, obviously. <laughs> that was like 10 years ago. No hmm. long. But anyway, and the other, the other thing is that most of the tribes are very Christianized. And oh, they were called, yeah. my tribe and the other tribes that came from on the Trail of Jews were all, uh, assimilated into Christianity, including my mother and my relatives. Oh, interesting. So, yeah, so there's a an ingrained Conservatism, like one of my half sisters, did not like my screenplay that I was writing because one of the one of the uh, bad guys was a veteran, and her husband was a Vietnam veteran. Mm. I pointed out there, you know, also the hero of the story is also a veteran, but she, <laughs> <laughs> she was she still didn't like it. Oh <laughs> no, missing the point. <laughs> Yeah. So anyway, 
I've been doing, I, uh, let's see, I, I've met, I got to go to a, an event in LA and I heard about this group, uh, called Los Angeles for All. I attended a meeting. I met the woman who was leading it and she seemed to like the idea of starting a corporation in Los Angeles. And so I decided I, that was another reason I, I wanted to come and work with her and her group to start cooperation in Los Angeles. And the other reason was Oklahoma was getting hotter and hotter. And as an 80-year-old 80, 80 person, it's just too much for them living in such a hot climate. And it's going to get worse. I mean, L.A. has hot days, but not as much as Oklahoma. The heat uh, dome of Oklahoma and Texas is ridiculous. Yeah, yeah. So that was reason number two. And reason number three was I couldn't seem to get anybody interested in working on my film in uh, Tulsa. I got a group together, very small. Two other people quit because they wanted to change the script. And I said no. So they left. And that was another reason. And let's see what else. There's another reason I can't remember. Oh yeah, I, I, when I was here, when I was here earlier, I met this group called, well it was a place called Cooperation, not Cooperation, um, the Eastside Cafe, which used to be a cafe, but now it's a community center. And when okay. I went there, I they were talking about indigenous people. And this was in the Latinx community, Chicana Latino community. And they were already having meetings, like supporting native struggles. And they, yeah. they, they talked about indigenous values. And I said, geez, this is where I should be. Yeah. So I was, <laughs> I was together. I decided I'm going to come to LA and work with this group. Something I find very typical, especially uh, with my with one of my friends, is we notice that a lot of people are for radicalization, right? Which is yeah. fine, except they're not willing to put the effort forth and the the physical labor into actually doing the radicalization in their community. Yeah. They just they just kind of want to do it online and be an advocate online, but don't actually want to put the work in. Yeah, and it reminds me of the so-called. Anyway, it reminded me of the revolutions that happened. The so-called revolutions happened in the Philippines under Marcos. Mm -hmm. uh, a million people came to the Manila and pushed him out. But if that was the revolution, he wouldn't. Why did the military come in and take over? Yeah. <laughs> they didn't get rid of capitalism. And there's still not one of his daughters running for president. And mm -hmm. they got some jerk like Duterte, who was the president for a while, or the last president. That was no revolution at all. That was a rebellion, but it wasn't a revolution. Yeah. The same thing happened in Tahrir Square. I remember some young woman came in. She was, she was there. And she said, oh, yes, the revolution. We had a revolution in Tahrir Square. And I said to her, no, that wasn't a revolution. That was a rebellion. And I explained to her why. I said, if it was a revolution, the military would not have been able to come back in, take over, and they did. That was the rebellion. And it was, it was, it was done through Facebook, which is a capitalist, capitalist company. And you cannot have a revolution just online. Yeah. 
And she started crying. She was so disappointed. But yeah. <laughs> that was the truth. Revolutions take years to build. You have, you have to build. You have to get the people behind you. You can't do that in a few weeks on Facebook, which happened in Hollywood Square, obviously. Yeah. And anyway, so it's pretty much up to the present, I think. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But you might have some more questions. No, that's, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, absolutely. Because, yeah, your journey to get to where you are has just been fascinating. And in, like I said, like you've had all these experiences that's given you like these tools to, to, to facilitate like the next generation and like give them the knowledge or at least like the, the more like the expedited version of like all your experiences to be like, Hey, this is what I've come to realize about everything that I've been through. Yeah. And right now more than ever, I feel like people need that. And people are, are finally realizing that, you know, as, as, as it's the, the phrase like think locally, not globally or, or yeah. people reverse it sometimes, but it's, it's really true. People are starting to realize that you have to find your community. You have to find and build your relationships with the people around you. And it's, yeah. it's, it's coming back, um, from the, it's, it's decolonizing, you know, our thoughts and our, our lives and how we live and kind of realizing it's not, it hasn't been healthy. And the reason why we're being faced with all these struggles and hardships and uh, awareness or mental illness is, you know, years of living in a, in a toxic society and environment. Yep. Delusion Guitari, two French philosophers, they psychoanalyzed capitalism and they found it psychotic. Mm-hmm. I remember reading about that and just kind of, Coming to, coming to, uh, an understanding of like, this is not the kind of behavior I really want to, to be engaging with. Yeah. You know, um. And Samir Amin, an African philosopher, had another saying around comparing cas- capitalism to a cancer because it depends on endless growth and that leads to death. Yeah. Yeah, then that's true. It's that's totally un- it's unsustainable. That's yeah. why we have global warming. Yeah. Yeah, it's true. And it's just it's interesting. How how did how did um how did you feel kind of like because it it sounded like um from your childhood was there a lot of um like indigenous influence in your household growing up or was that something that you kind of had to come back and touch base with as you were older? Well, there were some in uh, indigenous influence, but it was pretty much not made conscious. And mm-hmm. of course there were capitalists and uh, influences like around the patriarchy from the Baptist religion, because my grandfather was a Baptist preacher. Mm-hmm. For the, or the tribe, or one of 
for one of the tribal towns. But like at the at an example of mutual aid would be when we'd go to the church. Their church, all the churches were all Christian, of course. There, there are a few of the traditional spiritual practices, what they call stomp dances. Uh-huh. The stomp dance people who were trying to. I didn't learn. I, uh, I remember when I was younger, I would ask my mother, "What who are the, who are the stomp dance people?" And she said, "Oh, they just drink alcohol and do bad things." Oh, my goodness. <laughs> yeah. Because she went to boarding school most of her childhood until she was like 19 years old. And it was, we were far away and her, her father had no, didn't have a vehicle. Because when I was a kid, when we were living with him, when, he, when she divorced and went back to living with her parents, he got around in a wagon, horses in a wagon, team of horses in a wagon. Oh, wow. And he plowed his fields with his horses. He grew corn. And he had ducks and chickens in the garden and stuff like that. But he was living in a period that was slowly dying out. Mm. (laughs) So my life starts from like the 50s, but they were living in like the 20s. Their lifestyle. So it was really, really like agrarian, just off the land. Yeah. Anyway, I remember riding all night long from from one from the church back to his house. It's about thirty miles away. So it took a long time for the church horses to get back, and one of the horses fell and broke his leg, and he had to shoot it because once the horse breaks a leg. It's hard to fix unless you suspend them. <laughs> yeah. Oh man. Yeah, that's but I've heard stories about growing up, and uh, someday they'll get published. Absolutely, I'd I'd love to see your writing or or your screenplays or just all your, your all the creative things that you've been able to. Uh, release and either just sustain for yourself, you know, I'd be able to, I'd, I'd love to be able to take a look at that. And, uh, yeah, well, you can go to medium.com and most of our recent writings are there. Or Roberto Mendoza. Absolutely. And, uh, I can send you my, I have actually three screenplays. I don't know if you want all three of them, but I can at least send you. The most recent. Oh yeah, that'd be, that'd be amazing. I would love to be able to get a chance to read some of your work. And, um, you said that you have a, a seminar coming up as well. Yeah, a couple of them. Uh, where can, uh, where can people find that? Where, uh, where are those, like the dates and the locations? Well, uh, I, I was, like I said, I was in Detroit. I did a seminar with with a friend of mine, uh, Eleanor Finley. She and I s- share similar ideas, and that's online. It's it's uh, I can send you the link to that. I think it's I the IIC International. What's it called? IIC. 
Institute for Social Ecology. They, they, they was their mm-hmm. yearly institute. And, uh, you can find, uh, I may, I might be able to send you the link. So you can see that the one, the latest one I gave. And I have another one, uh, it's just an audio version that I did in Oakland, California about five years ago. I don't know if you want that one. That'd be, yeah. Anything we can do to kind of spread, uh, spread the knowledge you've gathered over the years and, and allow people access to more of the, the things that you publish. I think that would be great. And, uh, we'll make sure to, to have links for, in the descriptions for everybody to find all of your, all of your work. Okay. But yeah, thank you so much for, for coming by and telling us so much about your life and everything that you've been through and what you're working towards. Um, I always like to end our, my discussions, um, with a question. And my question for you would be, what's something you think you needed to hear growing up? Mm. Well, it's, it's kind of hard to say particularly, but <laughs> what, what, what was missing in my life, um, mostly from my stepfather who already spoke a word to me. He only spoke like a couple of sentences to me in all the years that I've grown up under him. Um, but even my mother's working barefoot and pregnant, basically, in, in the countryside, no electricity, no running water, not even a toilet. Uh, what I needed was some good attention, and I mm-hmm. wasn't getting it. And I got a little bit of attention for some of my teachers, which helped me tremendously, you know, to think better of myself, because mm-hmm. I was living in a real racist society. It was normal back then in the fifties to be racist. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. No, I, 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 I feel that. Yeah. Just some, just some attention, some acknowledgement, you know, it goes a long yeah. way. Especially yeah. with a young person. Yeah, absolutely. I, I just got enough to keep going with art and with writing. And was thinking about science. I'm always reading the latest scientific articles in the New York Times. <laughs> that that little that little um, interest that kept you going when you were a kid is still what keeps you going today, right? Yeah. Yeah. Alrighty, Roberto. I forgot, I forgot to mention too that I was influenced by the politics of the Zapatistas. Oh, okay. and, and also with uh, the people in Rojava, which is in the Kurdish people in northern Syria, that revolution. Mm-hmm. So those are inspirations that I didn't mention. And Murray Bookchin's writings, too, of course. He influenced the leader of uh, the revolution in Rojava. His writings... His, the, the leader was Abdullah Ocalan, who was leader of the PKK, which is a Marxist-Leninist guerrilla group. 
Mm. But he was he was captured and by the help of the with the help of the CIA and and they spent the rest of his life. Well, he's still alive, but he's in prison. But he had mm. enough time to read Murray Bookchin and change his thinking and decided he no longer wanted to be Marxist Leninist. He no longer wanted to fight for a Kurdish state. He just wanted the Kurdish people to have autonomy. We need to make like a like a, a reading list <laughs> where people can can uh, research and look look into all of these uh all the different type of literature that you mentioned. You're very you're very well uh very well uh, read on a lot of your uh, interests. Yeah. Well, I, I guess I can make a list and send them to you. Oh yeah, sure. That'd be fantastic. I'm pretty sure, like, there, there's going to be people that are going to be interested in in a lot of the things that you reference and what they can look into. Myself included. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Alrighty, Roberto. Thank you so much for sharing your time with us today, and uh, I'll make sure to link to everything in the description below. And uh, yeah, thank you so much. I appreciate your time. Okay. Thank you. I am so happy to have had this opportunity to speak with Roberto about all the work he's done to create change for the better. I'll make sure to share links to some more of his work and so you can check out some of his upcoming seminars. I hope you enjoyed yourself and you have a spectacular day. Remember, take a deep breath in, deep breath out, and tell yourself, you are here. Much love. You Are Here is brought to you by That Most Excellent Network. Stay updated on future podcasts and other various releases through our social media. Your love and support ensures our ability to bring bigger and better quality content your way. For more information about being a guest, you can contact us at youareherepodtalk at gmail.com. Again, that's youareherepodtalk at gmail.com. We'd love to share the ability to hold space and tell your story. Stay excellent.